0: Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. An author I really like a lot, a guy called A.W. Tozer, once said something, I mean he said many profound things and wrote many profound things, but one of the things that he wrote that I enjoy most is he said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. That's the most important thing about you. The most fundamental and most formative thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. And uh, the psalm we look at, Psalm 8 this morning, has a lot to say and a lot of powerful things to say about who God is um, and how we relate to Him. Uh, And it's, it's, you know, one of the most powerful and practical uh, things that we can that we can learn about all of our problems in life ultimately flow from our misconceptions about God. All our sins ultimately flow out of our misconceptions of God. And if we really want to change on the deepest level and in a lasting way, then we need to correct and tweak um, and fix the misconceptions we have about God. Uh, and, and the more we understand him, really understand him, the, the more we can become like him. Um, the, the, the problem is, uh, I, I share this often, but, but I think it's a very important and powerful thing to realize. Uh, the, if, if you don't understand something, then, then you're seeking to learn in that area. But the problem is if you misunderstand something, you actually think you understand it. To the person who misunderstands, their misunderstanding is understanding. Okay, So the problem is we cannot distinguish between our understanding of something and our misunderstanding of something. And often, so from, from our perspectives, our misunderstandings about God looks like understanding. And we don't know they there. And that's why we must have this disposition of humility of saying, God, we want to constantly come before you and not assume that we know you, not assume that we know everything about you, understanding that there are areas where we lack understanding, but also not assume that everything we know about you is right and allow you to come and correct those areas that are, that are not right. And, 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 and that's my prayer for, for this morning, that, that God will um, just come and correct if there are any things in our in our understanding about Him, that any areas in our understanding of Him that are that are wrong. So let's let's read Psalm eight together. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You can f- follow on the screen with me if you want. to. It says, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth." Um, just by the way, the um, the Lord there, the first Lord, is the the word Yahweh. It seems a bit redundant in the English. It seems like it's just repeating it. Um, but literally what, what the author is saying, um, the first one is saying Yahweh, which is God's proper name. And then, then this, the second Lord is Adonai, which means master or Lord. So he's saying, O oh Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name, Yahweh, in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. And the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And um, you know, I, just, I just want to share a, a, few, a few things here. The, the first is, you know, why we should listen to David. This is a Psalm of David. If you, if you read this sort of um, the heading, you'll, you'll see it says it's a Psalm of David. You know, why we should listen to David, uh, what David saw about God, how that made David feel about himself. And how God resolved the tension. And the first thing, um, you know, why should we listen to David? Now, it, many, probably most of you are, are Christians like I am. So if the Bible says something, um, you accept it because the Bible says so. Because we believe the Bible is the word of God. But, um, you know, I realize that some of you might be here and you s- might not A Christian yet you might still sort of be deciding whether you want to become a Christian or not. You might still be sort of in the process of deciding, you know, can I trust the Bible or not? And um, you know, I don't want to assume that you have the same commitment to to Scripture that I have. So I want to give you some of the reasons. Just this is just this is not an exhaustive list of reasons, but this is just one or two reasons from from this text why I think. We can trust the Bible, and why we can listen to David and actually uh, hear what he has to say to us here. Um, and first thing is, um, firstly, you know, if you look at the psalm, you'll notice it's really a beautiful psalm. It's it's just lyrically, poetically, and structurally beautiful. You know, it's, it, it 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 really touches your heart when you when when you read it. Um, it it it's beautiful praise and it's, it's very symmetrical and we, we like symmetry, you know, Um, symmetry is part of, of beauty, you know, Um, and it starts off with, with that refrain at the beginning and, and and it concludes with it at the end. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then sort of in the, in the portion just before, just after the opening chorus, it talks about God's glory as revealed in creation. And just before the closing chorus, it a couple of verses talk about God's glory revealed in mankind. And then in the middle, right in the center, there's that hinge, which is basically the question, that rhetorical question. What is my, man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care about him? Um... And and it's 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 this beautiful symmetrical, poetic, powerful, uh, and and I mean that makes us want to listen on the one hand. Uh, this, the second reason is because it's so relevant. Um, the whole issue. We we, we went down to, to Cape Town this past week and we had our pastor summit there, and it was in a place called uh, the Kloof, I think it was called. So it's just as you're coming from Paul and you're going through that tunnel, you know, uh, on the way to Wooster, you just go through the tunnel, just a kilometer or two, and then on your left-hand side, it's sort of all by itself, you know, amongst the mountain mountains. There's this, this conference center, and um, we had a conference there, and every time I, I go there, I'm just, it's, it's right at the foot of the mountains. And you look up at those mountains, and, and they are massive. And all of a sudden, you feel so small. You feel so minute. You, you, you feel your smallness. I mean, the mountains have been there for thousands of years. Um, and they're massive, they're big, and they're unshakable, or they seem unshakable. And then when you compare yourself to that, you feel just small. But, I mean, David is not even comparing himself to the mountains. David was a shepherd. And he's looking, I mean, he probably spent many nights under the stars, and he, and, and he didn't have the light pollution that we have. In the evening, So he so could see the stars clearly. I don't know if you've ever went out of, out of the city where there's no light and you've sort of gone camping or something and you just looked up at the night sky and just seen how spectacular it is. How, I mean, it, it makes even the mountains look minute. And David's looking up at that and it makes him, feel, and it makes him ask this question. What, you know, in light of this, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, and it's a very relevant question. I think a question that, that many people struggle with as we're going to um, see um, as we go on. But, but not only is it beautiful and relevant, it's, it's, it's also durable. This psalm, if it was written by David, it was written around 1,000 before Christ. And since David writ, wrote it around 1,000 before Christ, there has never been a time when people have not been reading it. So for almost 3,000 years... My math's right, yeah, about 3,000 years. <laughs> um, since this psalm was written, people have been reading it, studying it, memorizing it, singing it, cherishing it. So we live in an age that um, has a love for the new and, and often disregards the old. But the new, the new constantly comes and it constantly goes. But if something stays, if something has that staying power, that durability that this psalm has, then it means it's powerful. And, and, and not just for 3,000 years, but for 3,000 years across multiple cultures, multiple nations, people from all over the world have translated this psalm into their language and read it and prayed it and sang it and cherished it. And that shows you something about this psalm and about God's word in general. It has a durability, a staying power, which tells you that it's not just natural. But then, specifically in this psalm, just go back to to the second last verse in verse 8. It talks about the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. We shouldn't just listen to the psalm because it's beautiful, because it's relevant, and because it's durable. We should listen to it because it's truth. And in this psalm, God has given us a nice, powerful little illustration of the divine source of the Bible and of the amazing truth of the Bible. Uh, There's a guy called Matthew Morey, and he's referred to as the father of modern oceanography. And um, he lived in the mid, early to, to mid-1800s, and I think it was somewhere in the mid-1800s, eighteen fifties somewhere, where he became sick, and he was bedridden for a couple of days or weeks, I can't remember how long, I think it might have been weeks. And one of his daughters came in and, and read scripture to him, he was a, he was a very committed Christian, a, a, with a, with a strong faith in God and she started reading scripture to him and one of those times when she read scripture to him she read Psalm 8 and she came to verse 8 where it talks about everything that, that moves in the paths of the sea and he said the paths of the sea, the paths of the sea if God says they are paths in the sea then they must be paths in the sea and if I get out of the sick bed I'm going to find them <laughs> he, he was quite a, you know, a a scientific kind of guy um, and, and, and he did that. He recovered from, from his sickbed, and he actually did that. And he went to do water soundings and all kinds of stuff and did research in the what, looking for, searching for the parts of the sea. Because before that, oceanography and the whole thing of sea streams and so on didn't know about it. And science discovered in the 1850s what Scripture has been saying since 1,000 before Christ. Now, David didn't know that because he was a scientist. He knew that because he was a prophet. And what he was writing, when he was writing this psalm, he was being inspired by God to write it. But isn't that amazing? And um, here's a, a little picture of the monument to, to Matthew Morey in I think it's in, in Lexington um, or in Alabama. I'm not sure exactly where, where it is, but in America somewhere. And it says Matthew Fontaine Maury, Pathfinder of the Seas, obviously an allusion to that scripture. The genius who first snatched from the oceans and atmosphere uh, the secret of their laws, because he didn't only dis- discover the sea currents, he also discovered. Um, you know the the atmosphere and and, and and how that works. So meteorology he also made significant contributions to that, based on Ecclesiastes one verse eight, uh, and and then it says in, uh, at the monument, his inspiration, holy writ, and then it uh, then it refers to Psalm eight verse eight and Ecclesiastes one verse six. So can can we trust Scripture? By all means, can we? Should we listen to what what David said? By all means, if God inspired this as and I think this is quite strong evidence that God did inspire the Bible, then we can confidently listen to Scripture and know that it's not just man's word. It's the word of God in the words of men. And we can, we can heed it. So why should we listen to David? Because David was speaking the truth, um, inspired by God ultimately. And um, then secondly, um, what David saw about God And David saw a few things that we are often likely to miss as modern people. Um, It's interesting to me that David lived, you know, and and he was a shepherd boy before he became king. So he lived outdoors. He would have slept in the field with with the sheep. And uh, in the Middle East, it's, um, it's a rather dry climate, so there weren't that many clouds. So you can imagine a, a wide open night sky, you know, no, you know, lights in the evening the the way that we have them today, and and just lying there, looking up, and just seeing the Milky Way stretch, you know, and, and all these gazillions of stars that you can't even count, you know, uh, stretching out there, you know. So because there were, there wasn't that light pollution that we have today in cities, you know, there were certain things in the physical that he could see. But I also think that there's a kind of a pollution in our minds that prevents us. Because David didn't only see the stars, the sun, the, 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 star, the, the moon and the stars and the stuff that God put in place, but he could understand, he could see the meaning of it. He could understand what it all meant. So so in his mind, there was, there was also not a, a kind of a fog or smog that blocked him and prevented him from seeing what, what all of that pointed to. So, so sometimes we can go out into the field, but because of the... I almost want to say the pollution in our minds. We see the stars, but we don't think what David thought. We don't see what David saw when he saw the moon and the stars. Um, So what did he see? What did he see? And one of the first things that he saw was the reality of God. The reality of God. The fact that God is there. Now, We know when things have been designed, right? I mean, if you went to a, you were sort of an amateur archaeologist, say, and you went to some other island, and you were walking around the island looking for rocks and artifacts and stuff. You know, if you pick up a rock, just a rough rock, you know, you're not going to say, oh, this rock proves that human beings lived here because it's just a random rock. But if you walk around and you pick up a metal arrowhead. You're going to say, "Well, humans must have lived here because metal arrowheads don't just randomly appear in nature." And and uh, you know, they, they 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 How how do you know that? How do you know the di- what's the difference between the rock and the arrowhead? Design, right? There's design. There's complexity, but not only complexity, but specified complexity. And that's how we know that something has been designed. Because in nature, things happen pretty randomly. When, when there's no design, designer, intelligence behind something designing it and, and guiding it, then it happens randomly. Uh, I, I read a story once of a guy who was, he, he worked at home. He had sort of an office at his home. And, and um, he, he walked uh, from his from his house, you know, after having breakfast, he walked to his office and, and he walked underneath a, a tree. I can't even remember what tree, say a lemon tree or something. And there were a few, couple of leaves lying on the ground. And he, and he wanted to test something. So, so he took the leaves, about five of them, and he put them in a row. He placed them in a row under the tree and he walked to his office and he started doing his work. And then he waited for his wife because she always, at around 10 o'clock, brought him some tea. And he waited for, for her to bring him his tea and to ask what. He knew she would ask, and, and she, she brought the tea, and she said to him, um, "Ray, why, um, why did you put the leaves in a row underneath a tree?" <laughs> why did she ask that? Why did he know she would ask that? Because leaves don't fall in a straight row under a tree. <laughs> See, that's specified complexity. Some other intelligence has to order them in that way. OK? No one looks at Mount Rushmore and says, wow, isn't it amazing what wind and water erosion can do, you know? Eating out of the rock face the face of four U.S. presidents. That just... It must have taken millions of years for this to happen. (laughs) No, there's clearly design. You know, there's specified complexity. We can see it being designed by an intelligence. And when we look at nature, we see that as well. When we look at the heavens, we can see that. When we look at ourselves, we can see that. There's specified complexity. There's undeniable evidence of design if we care to see it. And David saw some of that. And he looked at that and said, there must be a God. Let me put it to you differently. Um, That monument that's up there, Someone must have built it, okay? This building that we're sitting in, someone must have built it. What, what evidence do we have that there's a builder? Well, the building is the necessary and sufficient evidence that there's a builder. The monument itself is the necessary and sufficient evidence that there's a builder. If you see a painting, you can know that there's a painter because the painting is the necessary and sufficient evidence that there's a painter. And likewise, if you look at creation, which shows clear signs of design, creation itself is the necessary and sufficient evidence that there's a creator. There can no more be a creation without a creator than there can be a painting without a painter. And David saw that, and he noticed that, and he said, God is there. But, but that's not the main thing that he saw, and that's not the main point that he makes in this psalm. Um, the main focus of what he, what he says is, is, is not the fact that God is there, but the greatness of God revealed in his creation. It says God put the moon and the stars in place, I mean you look at what God put in place, and I mean we know more about it than David knows. Of course we have powerful telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope and stuff, that we can see further into the universe than, than David even imagined being able to see. But but you know, that sense that I had during this week looking up at this massive mountain, when you see how big space is and the cosmos is, and, and, and the stars are, it, it just dwarfs us in comparison. I mean, if you just look at our own sun, which is a pretty average star, you know, and compare it to earth, you know, <laughs> earth is minute. But compared to us, earth is huge, but compared to the sun, it's small. It's really small. But compared to some other stars, the sun is very small. I mean, if, if you if you if you look at um, our, our sun's diameter, is, is apparently one point about just under one point four million kilometers. Okay. And our sun is one hundred and nine times bigger than the Earth. But then this um, star over here. Let me just sorry get a different color. This star over here the pistol star, the, the blue one, and I mention that one because it's, it's, it's quite... I mean, our star, is, is, you can hardly even see it. It's somewhere around there. It's just a little dot, a minute little dot. You won't even be able to see it on the screen. This pistol star is about 340 times the size of our sun. Okay? So it's a lot bigger than our sun uh, compared to how much our sun is bigger than the earth. Okay? And then if you go, go um, even higher, I mean something like the Cepheid star, the, the second, one, second biggest one of a year. Um, it's about 1,500 times bigger than our sun. And that's not even the biggest one. One of the biggest ones is Canis Majoris. I think it means something like the big dog. <laughs> Which is, I mean, th- you know, they, don't know ex- they cannot say exactly how big it is, but up to 2,100 times as big as our sun. I mean, that, that is just massive. That is just mind-boggling in size. Right? But that's nothing. Compared, the size of the stars and, and the suns is nothing compared to the massive differences between them, the massive distances between them. I mean, if you look at the sizes of the stars and you compare them to the Vast dif- distances between them, I mean, you have to measure them in light years that 's the distance that light travels in one year it 's like nine point four something to the power times ten to the power twelve it 's unthinkable distances okay The closest star to our sun is uh, I think Proxima Centauri, and it 's four point two four light years away. Okay, that's gazillions of kilometers. Okay, so um, if you took the distance from the earth to our sun, which is around about 150 million kilometers, which is big, and and you represented that with a page, like the thickness of a page. Now a page, your average page is about one tenth of a millimeter thick, so point 0.1 millimeter thick. So if you took that 150 million kilometers and you represented it by, you know, the breadth of a page, then the distance from our sun to Proxima Centauri would be a stack of papers about 26 and a half kilometers high, and that's to the closest star to us. Now and, and, and I mean, <laughs> then you, you're not only looking at, at the size of the stars and the distances between the stars, but then you look at just the, the amount of them. There are so many of them. I mean, you've you got the Milky Way, which is this galaxy, and that's pretty much most of what we see with the naked eye in, in the heavenly realm uh, when we look up into the night sky, is just the Milky Way, which is one galaxy. We know of hundreds of millions of galaxies. Some stuff that we look up and we see a a little pinpoint of light and we think it's a star, actually it's a whole galaxy of stars that we're seeing. Hundreds of millions of them. I mean, these are some of the pictures taken by, you know, that one on on your left, just a little patch of night sky. But so many stars, I mean, who are you going to try and count those stars? Just in that little small patch of of night sky. You can't, okay? Another one, um, you know, shows you that many of those little pinpoints that look like stars, they're actually galaxies. Just many of them, these, you know, cosmic whirlpools of light. Now, here's, here's something I want to show you. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, God made this with his fingers. <laughs> so you look at that, you look at the massiveness of it, the vastness of space, and the psalmist says, God made this all with his fingers, Does his finger work to him. So so when we look at creation and we feel small, how much smaller should we feel when we start to grasp what David grasped, get an understanding of how massive God was, that he made the whole universe. And and most of it we cannot even see. We don't even know how big the universe is. He made all of it with his fingers. That is how big he is. That is how massive he is. But but when he says he, he made it with his fingers... It doesn't just show us how great God is, but it also shows us that He's an artist. You know, an artist who works with His fingers. You know, all other, all the other creation accounts that I know of in the Middle East, all have, you know, some other battle. You know, where where gods or whatever slay one another, and then you know as they rip, you know, their entrails. Ate, you know, that becomes the creation, and you know it's violent. You know, and it's forceful and it's ugly, but God delicately created the, the universe with his fingers he's an artist and I mean we see it when we look through the telescopes God made that for thousands of years no one saw it and God just made it because he can he didn't make it because he thought Abraham would see it of course, he knew. Later on, we develop telescopes that will be able to see this. But he, but there are many things like this that we cannot even see. God just made it because He's an artist. He's creative. And he likes giving expression to His creative nature. There are a few more. All part of God's work of art. That is how big. That is how great God is. Now, you know this. When we see creation which dwarfs us, and, and then we realize that God dwarfs creation. God is so immense that he overflows creation and that creation cannot contain him. You know, that, that, that leads us to that question that David asked. What is man that you are mindful of him? And I just, just want to draw out just two applications of, of what I'm saying. And now, now, there are dozens of applications That are very powerful and very practical, but I just want to draw out two. The first is if God is so big that He creates this beautiful, spectacular, massive universe that we don't even that we cannot see even see the end of. If he is that big, do you really want to invite him into your life as your personal assistant to help you with your self actualization? And to accomplish your little goals. Do you really want to invite Him into your life as your assistant? Your little helper. Who can make you happy. Really? <laughs> of course not. Such a massive God. He doesn't come into your life as your assistant or your little helper. You enter into His life as a servant. He doesn't come into your life to do your will. You come into his life to do his will. Because he's the creator and we are the creation. He is much bigger than us, much wiser than us, much stronger than us, much more good and loving than we are. So, so you know, it has implications for how we relate to God, but it also has implications for how we relate to the world. Because any good piece of art, any good painting, actually reveals something about the artist, about the painter. They put something of themselves in their work of art, whether it's a song that they've written or a painting that, they'd, that they've um, drawn or you know, whatever. Any way in which they've artistically expressed themselves. So that tells us something about creation. That tells us something about the world. That tells us that everything in this world, if we look carefully like David did, we will see something of God in it. Now, obviously, a painting cannot fully express a painter. There's a lot more in the painter than can be expressed in one painting. And just like in the same way, there's a lot more in God than can be expressed in his creation but what this creation does is ex- expresses something about him it shows us who god is and wouldn't it be an amazing way to live to be able, when you when you awaken to this truth awaken to this reality and you start seeing things the way that david did start seeing truths about god realities about god in what he has made and everything Around you becomes an opportunity to discover more about God. We can actually live that way. So, you know, not only should we listen to David, uh, and when we listen to him, we, we we see something about God. But David also, you know, what he saw about God made him see something about himself, and and that is that God is big and He is small. But it it didn't only make him see something about himself, it made him feel something about himself. If God is that big, and we are that small in comparison, it's actually a bit scary. (laughs) If it's not a bit scary to you, then you're not really thinking about it. Because it'll make you feel a little bit like an ant just waiting to be trampled. I mean, when I walk around, you know, in the felt or something, I'm not looking, oh, you know, I must tread carefully because I might step on an ant. You know, I'm just walking, you know, and, you know, the poor little ants under me, you know, sorry, you know, they get squashed, you know. I'm not trying to be mean, but they're just so small, you know, you hardly see them, you know. You know, we are much smaller compared to God than the ant is compared to us. And it's easy when you see, you know, God, you know, you made all of this with your fingers, you know, to feel like a little ant that is about to get trampled. In other words, <clears throat> the greatness of God is not good news unless God actually cares, that great God actually cares about us. And that's the question here that David asks. You know, in light of the fact that you are so great, so big, so huge, what is man that you are mindful of? And the son of man that you care about him? Do you actually care about us? Do you actually love us? Because if you don't, God, it's pretty scary. And I just want you to notice that David is asking this as a believer. So you can believe in God and say, God, I know you're big. I know you're huge. I know you're powerful. And you know this because most of you, if not all of you, have probably done this. But say, "Okay, God, you are that great and that powerful, but why then would you even love me? Why, did, why then would you even care about me? Why would you even notice me? Why would you even think about me? Why, God? Do you even? And, you know, it, it, there's a feeling, it's almost a frightening feeling of, oh no, you know, there's this great power, power behind creation, the Creator, massive, scary, powerful, much bigger than me, but... What I want you to notice, it's not only something that believers face, it's even more something that non-believers face. Because if you're not a believer, I mean, if if you're a believer, you you say, okay, okay, there's a great God, you know, but it's pretty scary if he doesn't believe in me. But if you're not a believer, and you believe in, say, evolution, and that everything around us was created by random processes... Then it's, what, what meaning can there be to life? Is there any meaning in life? Can random processes produce meaning? No, they can't, right? Then actually, if you're honest about the implications of, of, of how you think the world came to pass, then you'll have to say, there really is no meaning. And it doesn't really matter what I do in this life. There is no right and wrong. I might have... Feeling that there's right and wrong, but there is no right and wrong because we, everything is just the consequence of random processes. Uh, I might feel like I'm significant and, and the people around me are significant, but actually we're not. We're just chemical accidents. There's no inherent value in us. And ultimately, you know, if that is true, it doesn't matter whether I live as a saint or as a serial killer. Because everything will eventually pass away. Um, A well-known atheist of uh, many decades ago, Bertrand Russell, um, had this to say, and and I I like the honesty of what he says because he he really is thinking out the implications of what he believes as an atheist. And and they asked him basically, you know, if there's any meaning in life and so on. And and he, he basically says that... That man is the product uh, of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth and hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration... All the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be burned beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, and yet, uh, uh, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be sa- safe built. You might look at that and say, oh, that's pretty negative. <laughs> <laughs> that's looking at it pretty negatively. But Bertrand Russell was an atheist and, and at least he was being consistent with what he believed. He truly believed that, you know, we were just the product of random processes. And he said, well, then there's no meaning in life. There can be no meaning in life. Nothing that we do matters. Nothing that we do for one another matters because, you know, whether we do good or bad, not only will we pass away, but those that we do it to will pass away. In the end, the solar system, I mean, our, our sun will explode and become a, 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 a red giant and it will swallow up the earth. And nothing will, according to science, and, and nothing will remain. And if that is true... And you are just a product of random processes. Does anything you do matter? No, it doesn't. So, you know, do you have the intellectual integrity and honesty to, to admit that this is so? That in order for you to have meaning in life, there has to be a God, and that God has to care about you. Otherwise, there is no meaning and no hope in life. And I think this psalm gives us a few clues um, that there is some meaning in life. That there is a God and that he does really care about us. There's this um, play by Samuel Beckett. Just 35, 40, 45, 35 to 45 seconds long. Um, he, was a, he was a playwright, um, a, a very famous one, and, and, and he wrote this, this play. And, and you can actually go and, uh, watch it on, the, on, on YouTube, a couple of versions of it. It's called Breathe. Or breath, breath, I think, by Samuel Beckett, and it starts off, and the stage is dark, and then the lights come on, and there's, there's only trash, garbage on the stage, and you hear the sort of a cry of a baby, and then someone breathing in, and then you see all the the, the, the garbage and the trash, and then the lights start dimming, and they start going out, and you hear like a a, a gurgling sound of someone dying, and then it goes dark. And what is trying to say with the play? He's trying to say, life is trash. You are trash. We are trash. Yes, we breathe and we think it's significant, but we're trash. We breathe and then we die. But that's not what the psalm says. The psalm says, no, God is mindful of us. Now, just a few clues that he gives us to, to how God is mindful of us. Um, When he asked the question, David says, in light of this greatness of God, what is man that you are mindful, that you actually think about him, and the son of man that you visit him? God actually thinks about us. The God who is so big that he creates the unthinkably immense universe with his fingers, he actually thinks about us. He's actually thinking about you right now. Can you, can you sort of feel the weight of that? <laughs> right now, as you're sitting there, he's thinking of you. He's seeing your thoughts, hearing your thoughts. He's saying, yes, I am mindful of you. But not only am I mindful of you, I care about you. That word care, you, you'll see some of the old translations like the King James um, translated, What is man man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. So the the word there in the Hebrew literally means to care enough about someone to visit him. And uh, you might think that that's just metaphorical, but for us who live approximately 3,000 years after David, we know it's not just metaphorical. God actually did visit us. You know, when um, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, when John the Baptist was born, he was struck dumb because he didn't believe the angel. But when, he, when they when they'd circumcised and named John, he, he was given back his, his ability to speak. And the first thing that he said was, God, I praise you that you have visited and rescued your people Israel. In Christ, God actually, this massive God who created the universe with his fingers, he came down and he visited us. He became... It, it says, what is man that you are mindful of? Him? The son of man that you visit him. He became a son of man in order to visit the sons of men. That's amazing. The son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men can become sons of God. He cares enough about us to come and visit us. And it, it says there... Um, that they made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. The, the word there, um, translated heavenly beings, is Elohim, which means God, which can be translated angels or heavenly beings, or it can be translated God or gods. When it refers to the God of the Bible, he uses the plural because he's a trinity, then it then, he, then it means God. Um, but here, I, I think heavenly beings are a good translation, or angels, the, um, the Septuagint version of it, which is quoted in, in Hebrews, actually says literally angels. But... There's a bit of ambiguity there as well. Yes, we are made, as mankind, we are made a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings or whatever you want to call it. That word little lower can also be translated for a little while lower. Jesus was made for a little while lower. He voluntarily became for a little while lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings, without ceasing to be God so that he could come and visit us. And that's what scriptures like Philippians 2 says. He didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to, to be, to be grasped at, but made himself, but emptied himself and took the form of a human being. So God visits us and he shows his care and his love for us. Um, but not only does he visit us, but he rescues us. It says, in, in, let me just read that, because that verse 2 is... is, is it's probably one of the most confusing verses in the psalm. It says, "Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength, because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger." And you sort of read verse one as, "Yeah, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth." And you get to verse two, and it's like, "What?" And then you get to verse three, three, and so sort of normal services is resumed. You know, okay, yeah, it's about creation again. I understand that, but this verse two doesn't make sense. But what does it mean that that out of the mouths of Babies and infants, you have established strength. Strength to do what? Strength to overcome your enemies and your foes. I mean, it's already surprising that such a great God would have enemies and foes. But what's even more surprising is how he overcomes them. But that is how this great God who created the universe with his fingers worked. He doesn't work spectacular strength the whole time. He works through seemingly vulnerable weakness. Babies. And Jesus, when he became a little, for a little while, lower than the heavenly beings, he came as a baby. He was incarnated as a little, helpless, vulnerable baby. And when he did the hard work of rescuing us, he hung weak and vulnerable and dying on a cross. So this powerful God saves through weakness. And he saves us, and he came and became weak and saved us through weakness. But, but not only that, it tells us something more. In what way are babies and infants, do they have strength? Especially, specifically in their mouths. Because initially, I mean, you know, um, those little, that little baby comes out, you know, and it's, its arms and legs and so on are so weak, it can hardly, you know, it can maybe grip your finger or so, but it, it, it has no strength in its body. But that little voice can ring. <laughs> It can cry out. So what is the strength that infants and babes have? The only strength they have is the strength of those who are moved by their voice, by what comes out of their mouth. And that's ultimately the only strength we have. And God is saying, you are like little babies to me, but like a parent, I am moved by your voices, by what comes out of your mouth. And that's where your strength lies. And then it says he crowns us with glory and honor and sets us over the works of his hands. In other words, the great king of the universe uh, makes us sub-regents, crowns us as kings under him to rule his creation. And we couldn't do it, at least we couldn't do it the way he wanted us to do, it. the way that that he would have done it. So he sent his son. He became one of us so that he could do it as one of us and that we could share in that. And um, a crown is not something you're born with. It's not something in your DNA. It's not something inherent in you. A crown is glory and rulership and authority that someone else from the outside places on you. And God says in yourselves, yes, you're weak. You're small, you're insignificant, but I crown you with glory and honor. And Jesus, when he was crucified, he received a crown of thorns, Remember thorns, referring back to the Garden of Eden, the consequence of our disobedience to God, our rebellion against God, was that the earth would produce thorns and thistle, that it would be cursed on behalf of us. And Jesus received the crown of thorns. He received the cursing that we deserved so that we can receive the crown of glory and rulership that He deserves and share in it. Why? Because this great, big, massive, spectacular, immense God who creates the universe with His fingers actually cares about us, cares enough to come and visit us, to come and rescue us, and ultimately to crown us. And when you realize that, it will make you cry out and sing with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Just remind yourself with David How big God is. How much bigger He is than than we are. How immense He is. And then while you're doing that, also remind yourself of how much He loves us. He's not just a big, scary God a big loving God He loves you and I so much more than we deserve so much more than we can ever understand if God was willing to sacrifice His only begotten Son whom He loves that much so that He could also love us so that we who are enemies and foes who started off in rebellion, insurrection against him. If he gave up his son who he loves that much so that he doesn't have to judge us, but so that he can forgive us and make us part of his family and love us and take care of us, how much does he really love us? Even as his greatness is greater than we can comprehend, even so his love is greater than we can comprehend. Doesn't that make you want to worship him? Doesn't that make you want to praise him? Doesn't that make you want to trust him and say, God, I, I do want to entrust my life to you. I want to live for you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for you. I want to give myself to you as you gave yourself to me. And if you're here this morning, and, and, and maybe you one of one of the people I was referring to in the beginning, you're still making up your mind whether whether you believe in God and whether you can trust Him. I hope that what I've shared this morning has convinced you that yes, not only is He big enough to keep His promises, but He loves you enough to actually mean those promises to you. And if that's you, I want you to take the elements of the communion. And when you eat the bread, we're going we're to all eat and, and drink together in a moment. But when you eat the bread and drink the cup, say, God, I receive you. I receive you as the great God of the universe, the immense God of the universe. But not so that you can be my assistant and my helper, but so that you can be my, my Lord, my God and my king. And so that I can serve you for the rest of my life. And if you are a Christian as you receive the communion and as we use the communion together remind yourself that God is much bigger than your biggest problems and that God is much more deserving of our worship and our service than we Give to him. And maybe just as you're using this, say to God, God, I recommit myself to serving you and to giving you the worship that is due to your name. I recommit myself to cry out, even publicly like David did, Oh Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and to put your glory on display for to see, for the world to see. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.